1: I am um, r- right now um can't hear you Mr. Sharkey. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, September 7th is just moments away, but before we do this, we need to thank our sponsors. Sponsors like SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor are sponsors, the Chicago Teachers Union, they are sponsors. It's true. And Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of movies to see, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more. Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com, subscribe, and you can check out columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. And if you want to help out this program, you can. Chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J O R A V is in victory, S K Y. And you can become a bin head. Find out more information Chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. It is Tuesday, September 7th, and live from my apartment and his attic, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, Bruce Williams returns, and also making his return, Legal Eagle, Attorney Jim Coogan. now your host, not Illegal Eagle, (laughs) (laughs) Chicago Reader Columnist
2: Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Magic Man Tuesday. And here's why. I was going to call it something else. We had an abrupt change of plan. So here's my old script. Just going to throw that old script away. okay? remember Donald Trump doing stuff like that? It worked for him. He got to be president of the United States. I'm just going to rip up this. Remember that day when he ripped up the script? (laughs) He started throwing it away. There's actually parts of Donald Trump's presidency, folks. I'm now gonna confess that I kinda of miss. I mean, just the idiocy of <laughs> when he took the I'm just, you know, they're never gonna show up. Remember when he was like the stands were full? And he was he was accusing the TV people of never showing the full. Fo- oh, he's anyway. still doing that. He's still they won't show. Anyway, Magic Man Tuesday, we have a little troubles connecting uh, with our Magic Man guest, the, the great uh, political activist out of California, Bruce Williams, uh, who came on the show once before to explain what is looks to, to us on the outside as utter freaking madness, but in reality is rational and logical and is going to work to the advantage of Democrats. I'm just going to keep saying that as my mantra. <laughs> Anyway, for a while, it looked as though uh, we weren't going to hook up uh, with Bruce, but the magic man, Dr. D, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois, the man who receives approximately $1.5 million to produce this podcast every month. It's true. It's true. (laughs) He just, I don't know what he did. You know, it was like horse whispering. And next thing you know, Bruce Williams is here. So Bruce, forget the opening script. Let's get right down to it welcome back to the show young man
3: thank you ben thank you very much i'm very happy to be here
2: and uh i have to tell you folks before we take the deep dive uh, we're a show that goes from center left and some of our uh on the outer fringes are our, um, our guests and listeners cannot stand the democratic party are always railing on me to be harder in the democratic party folks you guys would love this. And behind uh, Bruce, there's a huge poster of Hillary, and it just says Hillary. And I don't think he's being ironic. Okay, I think the man loves Hillary Clinton. So uh, anyway, it's it's it's. I'm trying. I'm, I Bruce, I'm doing my best to interview you and call you Bruce without suddenly calling you Hillary because I got this picture of Hillary right behind.
3: Me. Yeah, man. I can't I can't change that circumstance. That's a beautiful artwork that was done in the 2008 election when Obama's famous uh, Shepard Farley uh, or, you know, the the Great Hope poster. Yes. This was, this was the uh, Clinton campaign's counterpart to it. Oh, yeah. That's it's bringing back memories. Good. God. Yeah, and I you... just I just put it in a beautiful uh, matching royal blue frame and hung it up because she lost
2: well yeah she did lose uh barack obama defeated her and uh i must confess i voted for barack obama but that's ancient history let's move on let's talk oh, yeah. about the the election that's about to occur uh in uh, california actually voting has already uh, started it's the recall election and, and bruce was so kind to come on the show a f- couple months ago to explain it take us from a to z uh on the madness of recalling governor newsom the proposal to call Uh, Recall Governor Newsom. And here is the part uh, that just ordinary voters, uh, Bruce, this is where they trip as they leave the gates on this one, because if you're voting yes to Newsom, you actually have to vote no. So I think that was a big problem from Democrats uh, right at the start. So just explain that how a no vote is actually a yes vote take it away, Bruce.
3: Yeah. So, and that happens on a regular basis every two years in the California process of propositions on the ballot. It really depends on the way the question is worded, right? So in this particular question, the question is, shall Gavin Newsom be recalled from office as governor of California? Yes or no? So those who of of us who support Newsom and oppose the recall, have to say no to the recall. Because the question on the ballot, again, is the recall. It is not, shall Gavin Newsom be governor? It is, shall he be recalled as governor? And the answer to that, of course, is no. So the Newsom campaign is the no on recall campaign. Stop the Republican recall. Anyone who wants to recall him votes yes.
2: And so that's the message they've been putting out. Now, uh, I don't remember if this poll had come out uh, the last time you're on the show or just after. I can't remember. I've lost track of all time. Yeah. There was a poll that just freaked the hell out of Democrats, uh, anybody really uh, left of center that showed a very narrow margin between those who were going to vote to actually recall uh, Gavin Newsom and those who were going to vote against recalling him. I believe that poll was like 48 to 47 or something like that. Uh, You you told me about a new poll that came out that may give some of my liberal and lefty uh, Mm -hmm. listeners a little more encouragement.
3: Yes, so that was about four or five, maybe even six weeks ago, that initial poll. Once the recall qualified and was placed on the ballot, the most respected uh, polling organization outside of LA, the UC Berkeley Public Policy Institute, or if you hear me say UC Berkeley PPI poll, um, indicated that those who opposed the recall we at about 48 or 49%. And those who supported it were at about 45 or 46%, give or take the margin of error. Mm-hmm. And um, anecdotally, I, I will always remember this moment. I was at my neighborhood grocery store and this young 20-something cashier was looking at me. This is probably in July as I'm checking out. And I have this huge sticker that says, Protect Progress, Reject recall. And she goes, What's recall? And it scared the bejesus out of me <laughs> that this person didn't even know what the hell was going on. Yes. <laughs> so oh, now man. here we are in uh, one week away. And over the weekend, UCPPI released another poll. And sure enough, the No on Recall Newsome campaign is actually having getting some big traction. The poll shows that 58% of likely voters, whatever that means, um, are going to vote no to keep him in office. And uh, the number of those voting yes has dropped down to 39%. Now, whatever the percent that's left over is still undecided. Mm -hmm. And in most elections, undecided votes tend to, uh, if it's this late... They tend to vote. They they tend to protect the status quo. They tend to split evenly, or they lean slightly to the status quo. If that's the case, the uh, supporters of recall are doomed to defeat. Hmm. Now, go ahead. Mm -hmm. This isn't poll information, but I would also point out that according to the L.A. Times uh, uh, investigative research into the California. Department of State's numbers for ballot return rates. The ballot return rates in the heavily blue and liberal um, San Francisco Bay area are up to over 30 percent. Ballots already returned uh, down in Los Angeles County and Southern California. They are uh, in the high 20s and um, similar Similar rates of ballot return in, let's say, more red counties like uh, Fresno County, Bakersfield, Kern County, Riverside County are down still in just double digits like 13, 14, 15 percent. Those rates one week before the 2020 election were very similar because Democrats uh, in California, everybody gets a mailed ballot, period, no matter whether you ask for it or not and Democrats tend to, during the pandemic period in 2020, and still now with the Delta variant, are using the, the mail-in ballot. Of course, the uh, yes on recall people are all anti-vaxxers. COVID is a hoax. No, they hate masks and vaccine mandates. And so they're all waiting to go in person, which is fine. That's their prerogative. And I'm sure that you know they'll show up on election day, but they are still outnumbered two to one in this state. And so the real issue with the Newsom No on Recall campaign has been just engage our voters, bring the coalition together, and get the vote to turn out. And as I mentioned a month ago, now you see Bernie Sanders on television and in digital ads with ads to to vote no. You see Elizabeth Warren this weekend. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are going to be in the state. Um, So the entire width and breadth of the party has come together. The California Federation of Labor is doing uh, since August has been doing uh, phone banking two or three nights a week, uh, phone banking and text operations uh, on weekends to voters, and it's it's clearly starting to have an effect. In my uh, in my experienced opinion,
2: now you predicted this, by the way. Just for folks uh, to know this at the. Uh, most dire moments when uh democrats and liberals were freaking out uh bruce williams was predicting uh that the democrats ultimately would prevail so let's just uh talk a little bit about the the the, that poll i realize it's just a poll so yeah but uh it went from neck and neck to yeah. a significant lead uh, for uh, the no campaign. What do you attribute that? Do you? I got a number of theories that just the first one in my mind is that people actually figured out what a no vote means and what a yes vote means, which is the very basics. But what do you attribute uh, the reversal, if you will, it was neck and neck okay. and now it's 58 to 39. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, I attribute it to four basic dynamics. One, the Newsom campaign, the stop the Republican recall campaign got their shit together and clearly messaged it as a Trump inspired right wing attempt to overthrow the will of the voters from 2018 and that they wanted to take, it was the only way they could win was in an off year recall election to uh, throw out the democratic governor of the bluest state in the nation. Uh, So secondly, the campaign was clear And just say no. Just vote no. Don't even bother with question number two, which is, for those who may not know, there's a second question on the ballot where 49 different candidates are listed. And uh, the question is, if the governor is recalled, who shall be elected to replace him? And so... That question can be answered with just a plurality of the vote. Wow. Now, but the point is, the campaign focused on just say no. It's that clear. The second or third factor at work here is several things. It's hard to run against 49 different people, right? Most campaigns is this candidate A versus candidate B, right? Mm -hmm. But in this instance, Newsom was struggling with. How do I run against 49 people? Because the question is really, this is just about me. And instead of promoting me, like, you know, the message hasn't been, oh, I've done a great job and was the victim of circumstances. No, the message was, look at this crew, this motley crew of no name, no nothing, right wing people who want to replace me. Just think about that. So that worked. That worked. And then emerged, at uh, like a week, a day before the filing deadline, Larry Elder. The one candidate that anybody who is informed about public policy development and, and elections in California knows has been a talk radio host in the L.A. metro area, and now he's syndicated nationwide. Um, everybody knows Larry Elder and his, his absolutely... Awful views. Um, he thinks the minimum wage should be zero. He thinks women are too stupid to be in politics. Um, he has a former fiance who has accused him of brandishing a weapon when they were in an argument at home, and so on and so forth. He's got he's got a whole journal of quotes that would turn any even the most moderate Democrat mad. Third, so Newsom began to campaign against Elder, to use him as the face that he will win, because the first poll that we were talking about showed him with 18 percent out of all those 49 candidates. He was leading the field with 18. So they made him the target, and he's an easy target. In fact, he's got a bunch of golden eggs laying on a golden platter and just handing it to the Newsom campaign. Which they, which they wielded against him quite effectively in all the campaign ads. Third, you've got the Delta variant, which has uh, continued to threaten the health and the safety of the public across the state and in very obviously many other places across the country. And so now the message has been tweaked a bit to say, Save our health. Say, you know, if you if you vote yes to recall Newsom, you are going to be handing the state over to a person a person who's anti vaccine, anti mask, wants all the public schools open and the kids to be unmasked. Um, that's that's not a good thing to do when the Delta variant is out there working its magic. Finally. The great gift was the United States Supreme Court deciding just a few weeks ago to not enjoin the Texas uh, legislature in passage of its anti-abortion law that rules it out after just six weeks. I mean, women don't even know they're pregnant at six weeks from what every woman has told me. Um, So... All of those things combined. That same poll that I was just talking about last week, this past weekend, showed that of those likely voters, sixty-six percent of all the female voters, sixty-six percent are voting no because they do not want abortion rights in this state to be to be impaired. Mm-hmm. So all of those things have kind of combined to completely transform the the. Um, the dynamic at work. Mm-hmm.
2: By the way, I wonder if you'd have a similar uh, conversation with that, uh, that woman at the uh, grocery store, wherever it was that you said, would she know what the recall election was?
3: Oh, that's a great question. Cause you know what? About four weeks later, right mm-hmm. from then to now I encountered um, another young woman. I'm sorry. It's, I always frequent this grocery store and I was wearing the Gavin button and she goes, oh, yeah, I just sent her my ballot today. And I went, yeah, I was smiling from ear to ear like this. Now that told me anecdotally that it was it was getting through. It was getting yeah. through. Because now she knew about it. Now she knew about it. Wait,
2: it was the same person?
3: The same? No, no, it was no, not a different the same person. person. But the point is it's the same location. Yeah. The same demographic group or age group. And she, she was aware. Mm-hmm. That's just yeah. an anecdote but that said uh, to me it's getting through
2: yeah by the way uh, when bruce said uh, the uh, the Supreme Court action in Texas was a great gift. He did not mean, and I'm speaking for Bruce here, and I think he would agree. He did not mean it was a great gift to the country or to women or to anybody. Uh, what he meant was that it scared the hell out of Democrats in California. So, in that sense, it was a great gift to the Newsom campaign, but it was not a. The ruling itself was not a great gift. Just that had to is do that.
3: exactly what I meant, and I appreciate yes. that. Thank you.
2: Uh, so, all right, and uh, let's. This gets at the heart of the decision not to have a plan B, by the way, great flick. I just saw over the weekend plan B just oh. want to urge everybody to check that out. Uh, but going back to the uh, California election, the recall election, and Bruce and I talked at length about this the first time I was on the show. And what I mean by this is that uh, the Newsom campaign decided that they were not going to have a candidate, a prominent Democrat uh, in the, the, the second part of the election the question too among all the candidates running to replace newsom if people voted to recall him and their uh, their reasoning was that it would just distract from the first part of the campaign which is the first question which is to vote no man this it does get confusing bruce i have to tell you uh and uh, anyway so at the time I was questioning, uh, th- that strategy, uh, and Bruce strongly countered me by saying it made sense to him. Uh, so we had a mini debate, uh, on that show. Uh, do you still stand by that, Bruce? Do you think it's a still a good strategy not to have put a plan B not to have, a, a stronger, more recognizable, a democratic name, uh, in the, uh, for question number two?
3: I do indeed. I think that the, um, The uh, progression and evolution of this question is confirming my um, belief that that was the right call. And I would also add, not as a clarification of what you said, but as an addendum or footnote, that it was not just the campaign who was urging Democrats to stay out, but it was the entire Democratic establishment, who swept in immediately, like I said before to you a month ago, that when Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren came out publicly and endorsed Newsom immediately, that said to the progressive wing, look, we cannot split, we cannot have a Democrat on that second question. We're all going to get behind him because we cannot afford to have a Republican governor um, elected in this state with a plurality. So then the second thing that I think confirms my my view is that it allows for the very clear message, just vote no. You don't even have to vote in number two because a lot of voters think that if they vote no, they can't vote in number two, but some, even well-meaning de- Democrats and progressives, vote no on recall, but just in case... I'm going to pick somebody over here. Yeah. And that's the whole candidacy of a young 29-year-old guy named Kevin Fofgraf, um, who is a Democrat, registered Democrat, though I have to say he ain't no Democrat at all. Uh, he's more of a, a, li- a libertarian, really. Mm-hmm. He he made his millions in real estate, and now he has um, a YouTube of uh, He's got like 1.6 million followers, and he wants to give every public school student $2,000 to go into, he calls it his future schools initiative. It's the same as the private school vouchers. It would simply drain public education of more money Mm -hmm. and send kids into trade school so they can get a good job. He's a good capitalist, and he wants those kids to get a good job. So to make a long story short, uh, to circle back to your question, mm-hmm. I'm absolutely confident that that strategy was correct in 2021. Now, did, have you already voted, Bruce? Uh, my ballot is sitting on my coffee table. <laughs> it will be in the ballot box sometime this week.
2: All right. Uh, I'm urging you to hurry up and vote. Did you vote for a candidate uh, in the second question, or did you leave it blank? Left it blank. There's nobody there that I would even consider voting for that. And and by the way, folks, I have to tell you, uh, Larry Elder, we could do a whole show on how insane Larry Elder is. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Bruce, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but from time to time, I would know uh, to go down the U2 rabbit hole like every day go down that rabbit hole uh and over the weekend I spent a little too much of my life watching Larry Elder clips on uh, YouTube man is freaking he had this one exchange with Candace Owen who was this far right uh Trump loving uh talk show host where he was they were talking about reparations and he was say you know and, and let me just preface this. Uh, Larry Elder is a black man and Candace Owens is a black woman. He goes, you know, when I think about reparations, slaves were actually property. Uh, and they so they belonged to somebody, slave owners. So when you talk about reparations, you know, at the end of slavery, you really should be talking about uh, giving reparations to the slave owners for the property they lost. So he says this batshit crazy thing, Bruce. And Candace Owens is nodding her head like, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that And like wow, this is just some, um, I mean, I know the world is crazy right now. Uh, the people taking the, the deworming or horse deworming pills left and right firefighters in LA uh, proclaiming that the, it's a loss of Liberty. If they have to get a shot uh, it just, It's just, just a carnage, ongoing carnage in the city of Chicago. It's just an insane world out there. But this one, I I don't know. Sometimes you just got to laugh at it, uh, Bruce, when I watch Larry Elder and Candace Owens discuss uh, giving reparations to the slave
3: owners for the loss of the slaves. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more. Um, That's why I indicated one of the very first gifts to the Newsom campaign was the emergence of Larry Elder at the last minute as the overwhelming leader Of the pack. Out of 49 candidates, he's now up to like 31% support. Now, the other 48 have to just, you know, dole out the crumbs. Yeah. So he's an easy target. I couldn't agree more, Ben. All right, we are uh, going to
2: take a break, say goodbye to Bruce Williams. Uh, Just farewell, I should say, Bruce. Uh, One way or another, we're going to bring you back after uh, the votes are counted. Either it will be a victory lap where you're saying, I told you so, or it'll be, I don't know, we'll be crying and drinking and smoking reefer or whatever just to get over it. But uh, we'll bring you back to do an analysis of the results. Are you good for that?
3: Absolutely. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Bruce. I appreciate uh, you taking time to talk to us. We're going to take a break. When we return, the great attorney, Jim Coogan, will be on and He'll be explaining the Supreme Court ruling regarding Texas. Good luck with that explanation, Jim Coogan. We'll be right back with Jim Coogan. Hey, everybody, we're back. Welcome back
1: to The Ben Jarowski Show, live from his
2: We've left the madness of the California recall process, and we're going to enter the madness of the Supreme Court decision in the Texas abortion law case and other uh, legal issues with our favorite legal advisor, Jim Coogan. Uh, he's also our favorite White Sox fan, and he's been on the show the last three times, Jim Coogan, I think it's been, talking about White Sox. Uh, so now we're going to not talk about the White Sox in any way. We're going to just... Resist that temptation. Uh, other than to say, man, Robert looks good, doesn't he? But wait, I'm sorry. We're not going down that path, Jim Coogan. So welcome back to the show. And we're going to talk only about law. OK,
0: good to be back. Good to see you both, Dennis. Uh, hey. although I heard the I heard the lead in. I'm not here to defend the Supreme Court's decision just to help probably explain it. I heard, you almost. it sounds like you're going to, you know, no. good, luck, good luck with this one. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that, but I'm not sure how much I can do to defend it.
2: Yeah, no, I, uh, I didn't mean to suggest. We'll just edit that out, of course, and the editing process that never takes place in the Ben Dravsky show where uh, Dennis corrects my stumbles, and I think he actually, Jim, just adds more in there uh, when I'm not looking. Uh, all right, uh, Jim Coogan. Um, wow. The, the t- I don't know what's worse, the Supreme Court uh, decision uh, not to enjoin the law or the law itself. So why don't we start with the law itself, and then we'll move on to the Supreme Court's uh, decision uh, in, uh, on, in the case that was before them. So take it away. Just describe for folks the law itself.
0: Yeah, so this is definitely the next in a long string of um, anti-choice and, uh, I guess, anti-women's health strategizing from different legislative groups outside, you know, th- these laws, for example, this, this kind of law, lots of other laws that have been used uh, to create constitutional challenges over the years, specifically in the area of women's health and abortion uh, care. Aren't always the product of some particular legislator in Mississippi or Texas or Florida or wherever. They have outside people who help them with these things. They have outside groups that spend a lot of money advocating for these things. So this this is the in a long series. Trap laws have been the subject of lots of constitutional uh, examination over the years. That was that was a method of trying to gum up the works and making it impo- make it impossible to provide abortion care by putting all kinds of regulatory restrictions on providers you know they'd say if your clinic is more than 100 miles from a hospital then you're not nearby you're not close enough or the walls in the hallways have to be 18 feet wide to comply with hospital standards even though they're not doing hospital type surgeries there they're doing other types of procedures um, making it so that if if your main provider didn't have hospital privileges at the nearest hospital, that you couldn't provide these services. And then the hospital just would refuse to, to offer those privileges. So the, these were clever ways designed to kind of sidestep Roe versus Wade and the protections on a women's right to privacy that the, the Supreme Court announced in that decision that allows women the ability to do things in the best interest of their own health without the, the hand of the government coming down and telling them what to do. You know, Traditional small government advocacy here, Ben. So this this Texas law is, is actually really, well, it's very clever, but it wouldn't have been so effective if the majority of the United States Supreme Court didn't willfully go along with its conceit. And by that I mean here they've done something creative. Instead of having it uh, a situation where uh, regulators in the state of Texas or uh, county prosecutors would be the folks actually enforcing this law by, let's say, prosecuting uh, a provider who performed an abortion seven weeks after the, the woman's last menstrual period, which the six-week number is what one of the things built into this law, um, instead of having it so that the Supreme Court could then say, yep, we're going to enjoin, that's what injunction is, that the words are related, basically a court stopping activity before all the merits of the case have been decided. Supreme Court could say, wait a minute, this is blatantly unconstitutional. It's inconsistent with Roe and Casey and everything else that we've been saying since this 1970s. So therefore, state actors, you people who are acting under the color of law, you may not do anything until this has been decided on the merits, fully briefed, and that might take a while, and in the meantime, this law can't be enforced. Instead, what they did was they made it so that it's sort of like uh, privately uh, licensing bounty hunters because it's essentially saying anyone can have standing to bring a lawsuit against not just the provider not just everybody that works at the clinic not just the woman involved in this in the in what probably is the most difficult decision she'll ever make in her life but even somebody who may aid or abet this process. So in other words, an individual dude who's uh, you know creepy enough to sit there and stake out an abortion clinic can take down license plate numbers and just start filing lawsuits against everybody who pulls into the parking lot which the Texas legislature has decided he could get $10,000 if he successfully reports somebody and uh, they find that the person actually was in violation of this statute. So that's really the, one of the biggest um, wrinkles that we're dealing with in this one, Ben. It's this private enforcement mechanism. So a few minutes ago what I said was the Supreme Court's majority went along with this because if you read the decision, which is about two paragraphs long, it, this there's just a remarkable statement by uh the the majority here where it says that the antecedent let's see legal questions mm-hmm. presented here are are so novel that essentially they can't they can't really address them at this point in time that they and, and and that the Supreme Court doesn't have the ability to enjoin private citizens from taking actions and therefore their hands are tied they can't do anything they're just T- you know, completely befuddled by this, <laughs> this, I mean, you know, we've only had a Supreme court for 230 something years and they've found ways to enforce the law when necessary, but here they have been completely flummoxed because of this in ingenious application of the law, which really isn't all that ingenious. And it really isn't all that novel, but it's, it was designed here to create just this kind of a, I don't know, of a conundrum. And the five justices have sought have decided that they're going to go along with it and, and, and pretend that their hands are actually tied.
2: Yeah. Now let's uh, let's just pause for a moment uh, and to confront the the issue that I'm always uh, presenting to you. It seems like whenever we talk about Supreme Court rulings or any judicial ruling, uh, and the jaded, cynical observer of Chicago politics uh, generally says to you, uh, a judge only concocts a uh a decision to sort of justify the opinion he had from the get-go uh and they're just they're all politically craft crafted documents uh, to uphold that judge's worldview and sometimes it looks as though i'm wrong with my jaded observation when a when a uh, a judge very rarely will rule in a way I didn't expect. But this one sure looks that way, uh, Jim. You just read their ruling, two-paragraph ruling, where they effectively say their hands are tied, there's nothing they can do about which just seems to me to contradict the central point. If you're facing a novel uh, law, the first thing you would do is prevent the state from enacting the law because you want to determine we want to think about whether it is constitutional i've never heard of it i i don't know i you help me out here i've never heard of a judge saying well I, I don't know what to do with that one so i'll just let you do it whether it's legal or not legal and to me it's just like how they just said how can we come up with a couple of sentences to justify uh taking away abortion rights in the state of Texas, because this is what we want to do. And they just cooked up this two paragraph response to uh, solidify something they already wanted to do. Do you think I'm being too cynical and jaded in my interpretation?
0: No, not in the sense that I think that these justices were ready to do. Well, the broader idea of, you know, sometimes I think it's improperly framed in the media um, either in the Supreme Court justice side of it, or just general politics media, where the, the question was, well, will they overturn Roe versus Wade? What about overturning Roe versus Wade? Are you going to over? Nobody has to overturn anything. They could either decline to follow the precedent, which this shockingly does. It, I mean, for the court to go along with anything, where they're just igno- they nobody in its. You know, this is very short. There's three dissents and a two or one and a half page, well, I'm putting opinion in quotes because it's not really an opinion. It's just a statement. It's an order. It's a ruling. Um, they basically don't have any direct statement about the merits of it or anything else, but what they've done, what they, they can't pretend like they don't understand the impact of what they're doing, overturns 50 years of their own precedent, their own decisions. So it's not enough... It's not, it's falsely framed to be concerned about whether adding another justice would have led to, or even asking uh, Amy Comey Barrett in her uh, confirmation hearings, whether or not she believes in that. And I'm sure she said something vague and unspecific about following precedent, because every judge can pay lip service to that in a confirmation hearing. But this, clearly, nobody even bothers to argue at any point that it wouldn't be constitutional if it were just a normal law they're basically saying here you know the statement one of the few statements they make federal courts the or enjoy the power to enjoin individuals tasked with enforcing laws not the laws themselves which is also not i mean yeah it's true that they have to enforce like in order to enact the enjoining of or injunction of a law you have to stop somebody from doing something but mm-hmm. they could say that this demands additional constitutional <laughs> scrutiny. They could say the most obvious thing, which is this by itself sets aside our own precedent that we've been ruling in a certain way for 50 years. Yeah. So, of course, they already knew what they wanted to do, and they wouldn't go along with this kabuki feeder of acting like <laughs> they can't take any action here unless they wanted to.
2: Yeah. Uh, were there any of the judges that signed uh, onto this like, Kabuki theater? That's good, good line. Wish I thought of it. Uh, uh, were any of the judges a surprise to you? In other words, were you startled to see, like, Gorsuch joining this force or uh, any of them, uh, Kavanaugh or Thomas? Anyone, Any of them a surprise to you?
0: I think that one thing that it's it's easy to fall victim to or it's easy to fall into this trap is when people just have kind of an overly simplified characterization of what they think each justice is about, they're not it's they're not automatons. These are human beings. And and sometimes they will do things that are do actually support and uphold the just and equal application of the law. Like when we saw Judge Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh signing on to the basically correct answer in terms of uh, the turning over of the president's tax returns, because the law has to, they clearly in some, they aren't going to just universally undermine the authority of the courts and of the, and the laws themselves. So they're trying to do, they're trying to do both. They want to be faithful to the the causes that they obviously also support, such as limiting woman's choice. But don't want to completely look like they've just given up. So th- there are some, there's some nuance to some of these justices. Justice Gorsuch has written or uh, wrote a very powerful opinion defending uh, Native American rights, which was, I think, surprising to people. Because, again, if you just kind of pigeonhole them and assume that a conservative bad guy is going to only do these things all the time, it's obviously going to be too simplistic. Um, you know, here it was five to four. Justice Roberts joined with the pres- presumptively liberal wing of the court in the dissents but you could explain that a lot of different ways if that's a you know if that's political maneuvering to try to appear as if well you know i'm not going to be a, a hardcore partisan on every issue but it still has no practical effect because there's still only four votes so signing on to these dissents or he signed on to one dissent two others that he didn't join from justices kagan and justice Somayor. um It doesn't really mean anything because there's still five votes in favor of it. So he may have even looked at it and said, well, I'll I'll continue to look as if I'm the neutral arbiter here and I'm not just a partisan, knowing what the other five justices were going to do anyway.
2: Uh, I think, Jimmy, you've been hanging around me too long. Uh, I totally, completely, wholeheartedly agree with you on what John Roberts was up to. Uh, And I completely agree with the unstated part of what you said, which is that it's a political act, just like the others were making political acts. And I've always thought we've had this conversation about Roberts before. Uh, He's what's left of of moderate Republicans, and he doesn't want to push the Republican Party uh, too far to the right. I think that was clear when he made that uh, the ruling that upheld Obamacare. Yeah. Uh, And I think he's just been replicating that uh, decision in one case after another. And and I agree with you. They are political animals. I'm just going to make one slight uh, correction to what you say or uh, take issue. You said uh, the the majority are trying to limit a woman's choice. I would say they're trying to eliminate, not uh, limit. Uh, women's choice when you when you say that uh, abortion is illegal uh, only uh, for six abortions illegal only for six weeks you're effectively outlawing abortion because as you said most women don't know they're pregnant um, (laughs) at uh, six weeks so uh, they're trying to eliminate Um, wow the shadow the shadow agenda. This is this is something we've gotten so used, uh, Jim, to Supreme Court decisions coming down in the spring. You know, these major decisions like what in May and June. I remember you coming on the show. We we're talking about them. There's, you know, which we would be talking about. What is the Supreme Court going to follow Trump, et cetera, and so forth. And then out of nowhere, uh, we get a, a major decision in, uh, what was it, uh, in early September. Uh, so something up is up here, and it, it, I think it was confusing uh, to a lot of people, and that's this notion that you can make big-time decisions uh, without, what, hearings, arguments, briefs, like all the stuff that we thought required, uh, was required for big-time decisions. Talk about this.
0: Well, sure. So there is a Supreme Court docket. There's a process. There's a they they choose the cases that they want to have briefed every term. They invite the parties then to brief you know very substantial legal briefings that may include all kinds of, beyond the merits of the underlying case. There may be all kind of the, a much broader assessment of authority and. Um, precedent from state cases from prior federal cases uh they're pretty they're very thorough review of the law because the supreme court as the final arbiter of of federal law in this country has a, a great amount of discretion they're not bound just by some narrow decision about whether something was properly applied at the at the original trial court level uh you know whether someone's constitutional rights were infringed under the fourth amendment in a seizure or, or something else, or whether death penalties in certain cases might constitute cruel and unusual punishment under the eighth amendment. So because they have such enormous power, we're used to big full briefings, amicus briefings, which is a Latin word for friend of the court, interest groups of different persuasions will submit things to the court arguing sometimes in more legal terms, sometimes in more social policy concerns, Uh, about why they should rule a certain way and what impact it's going to have on American society. None of that happened here. The, The law was passed in, I think at the end of July, it was set to go into effect midnight September 1st, 2021. And there had been some initial pleadings, I think at the trial court level that led up to early September. But by the time it was set to take effect, Nothing substantial had really happened, in the Fifth Circuit, which is what the federal circuit that includes Texas, I think had done nothing with what was before it, so an application was made to the Supreme Court on an emergency basis saying, if you don't do something right now, this will go into effect, and it will, compl- you're right, I would agree with you, completely eliminate the ability for women to seek abortion care if that's the thing that they need, um, which Again, knock, knock, Supreme Court, you guys have been saying for 50-something years that that's supposed to be their right under the law in this country. So you need to take some action. Otherwise, taking no action would ratify something that completely undermines your authority. Mm-hmm. Again, instead of doing anything else, they went along with it. Um, and so this this question about what what is a shadow docket, it, it sounds kind of mysterious, but essentially, it's there there can be a legitimate function where a body is as important and powerful as the US Supreme Court where they can sometimes take make certain rulings have certain orders where it doesn't require that full-blown briefing where it's not that entire process so, so so it's not necessarily a pejorative term to say there's a shadow docket however it's a question of how it's used when it's used under what circumstances and whether it's used consistently something that was um, highlighted by I think it was Justice Kagan's dissent was the one that said that this is an abuse of an in, and an inconsistent method of using the shadow docket. What she's referring to is that under a lot of circumstances, the Supreme Court would say, well, you know, this is the kind of thing where there are substantial rights at play and we shouldn't be just offering short, quick, decisions. That's not how we work. That's not how the the most august legal body in this country ought to work for something of great precedent that affects the rights of millions of people. But that's exactly what they're doing here. And before you take them at their word that while their hands are just tied and they can't do anything, they, they, the Supreme Court, especially during the Trump administration and in the last few months during the Biden administration, has made, the statistics are such that they've made much greater use of this System of just ruling with a, f- a five-to-four opinion where there's no actual full-blown opinion, uh, and specifically, they are very interventionist when it comes to cases where the person who's saying that their rights are being infringed is saying it under on a religious basis. Several cases during the pandemic where. Uh, a group was saying, we're not allowed to have church, but they're letting the drugstore down the street operate. Yeah. This is an infringement under the First Amendment, and these regulations cannot be allowed to stand. Supreme Court didn't say, well, you know, this is a public health issue, and we have to defer to the governors because, after all, this thing is killing hundreds of thousands of Americans, if not millions of Americans. So we're not going to get in the way here. And, and, but if you want to have, we won't rule on an injunction. But if you want to rule, have a full-blown ruling, maybe we'll take this case up later if you can prove that you actually had your rights infringed upon. Mm-hmm. They had no they don't such compunction in, in several cases like that. And their use of these kind of in, injunction orders, it's, it's gone from, I read some statistic, it was used maybe five times in the course of the Bush and Obama administrations. It, they used it 28 times during the Trump years. So these are, again, these are situations where there's much less public scrutiny, nobody's reading about it for a couple of weeks leading up to it, where it's in the the general news and, and people have a chance to maybe have some understanding of what the heck is going on in the Supreme Court's docket. So their use, I mean, just by those statistics alone, has skyrocketed.
2: Yeah, and it is pretty, I don't know, it does seem pretty selective. I know one conversation we had a lot, uh, we talked a lot about was whether Donald Trump would be forced to uh, release his taxes. And I remember almost every ruling, we we broke them all down, uh, Jim, a bunch of them anyway they would enjoin the prosecutors or the congressional investigators. You know what I'm saying? Well, we're ruling that you have the right to it, but we also realize that uh, there are these outstanding legal issues and we're going to allow Donald Trump uh, to protect his tax, to conceal, continue to conceal his tax returns while uh, judges hear this, the matter. So it, if you're just an ordinary citizen trying to make sense of it, it does seem rather selective. Uh,
0: yeah, where that was dealing with the financial, I guess, privacy rights of one individual, okay. and here this is affecting—I don't know—what are the 25 million people in the state of Texas? Yeah. Um, so, and it's not just people in Texas; it's going to affect other citizens because I, you can. I don't. I assume it's already happened where other states where they have been trying to eliminate women's uh, medical rights are going to copy this, this pattern and pass the same law.
2: Well, let's uh, there's like three issues that I've taken notes on that. I really want to talk to you about. Uh, And let's just start with um, a political question before I get into the bounty hunter question and the the copycat laws that will come in. The political question is this, uh, if you're a Democrat, and you watch the behavior of those five justices uh, who just did away with abortion rights in that one ruling, at least for the moment. But that's where we are right now. Other states can pass similar laws. And if the vote is the same, they can eliminate abortion rights uh, in many states across the country. Uh, does Is your sense that the time has come to add justices to the Supreme Court uh, and to sort of take away the all-or-nothing dilemma we face where, like right now, uh, uh, Stephen Breyer, what is he, 83 years old or what have you, and already Democrats are saying, retire, retire. Was, I remember they said the same thing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Retire, retire, because if you die while you're in office, uh, excuse me, while the Republicans are in office, then it'll be a lifetime of hell. Uh, so do you think we... The moment has come when uh, Dems should take a movement toward uh, adding seats to the court.
0: Well, I have no doubt that, and I believe the Biden administration has, they've announced, I don't know how much, how far they've gotten into the process, but they've announced that they want to have some sort of panel to examine changes that can be made to the Supreme Court structure. There, I mean, there's some important things to consider here. Number one, the, Supreme, the, the United States Constitution does not state, that the Supreme Court must have nine justices. It's a, it's a product of, there is a law that's been passed, a statute by Congress that relates to the number of justices, how long their terms would be, and how they, they used to have more situations where they would circulate, and, and actually some justices would rotate on and off the court. There's been other setups over the years. So the questions of how long their terms are, the number of justices, and whether or not there's any rotation of who actually sits on on a a given panel for a given case can be changed. Those three things are not set in stone. They needn't automatically be the case. So your question is specifically about adding a number of justices. I would say this. I don't think there's enough people in the Senate, given the size of the country. (laughs) I don't think there's enough representatives. What is it, 800,000? 825,000 people per rep in, in, the, in a state where it's big enough to have more than one rep, like Illinois, that's how many people my representative, Jan Schakowsky, has to keep in touch with. It's preposterous. I mean, it, it's literally impossible. So furthering that, the notion that nine justices could really be a representative sampling of the greatest, even the cream of the crop, greatest legal minds in the country, is it really reasonable to say that really just nine represents that whole group? and only nine of them are going to have the power to decide cases at this level, I, I don't know that it makes sense. Franklin Roosevelt got bad press, I think, initially for being labeled as, uh, you know, he wanted to pack the court simply because they disagreed and kept overturning his New Deal uh, legislation that was being passed by a very Democratic House and Senate at the time in the 1930s. Um, but back then, the country had like 100 million Americans. Now there's triple that. Would it be? I think, frankly, it would be very reasonable to say, let's add justices. And why does it have to be the same nine justices in every case? I don't really understand how, the, first of all, in a democracy, the notion that those nine people have no term limits, they can't be, the, the ethics rules are so twisted that they really can never get off the court unless they choose to or they have health or, or death comes to them. So that's it. They can't be removed for, I mean, impeachment would be a meaningless exercise, I think, under any circumstances, even though it's theoretically possible. So why would? It, why should you know, sitting here right now, if you're filing a lawsuit, you know exactly who your court's going to be every single time? Even that's, Now, granted, that's true at state levels as well, but maybe that ought to change. Illinois has seven justices. They just reconfigured the allocation by district as to how many... Um, how many voters are in each district because it had gotten so skewed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think there's a lot of merit. I know Ro Khanna is a representative from the state of California who is very in favor of this, some kind of change. I think they ought to add justices. And I think there ought to be a mixture, whether it's seven, nine, 11, pick a number that decide any individual case on a randomized basis so that you might actually see some, some diversity of opinion. And, and I think that frankly, there'd be more legitimacy to those decisions because right now, this, this body has become so partisan. Yeah. Um, it didn't do anybody any favors, unfortunately. You think transparency being a good thing. But the moment that the Supreme Court confirmation hearings became televised, which I think was Robert Bork was like one of the first ones in the 80s, maybe, where this stuff would be put on the nightly news and people would start to look at it. From that point on, it's become so partisan and so transparently partisan that i think that that's hurt american justice ever since that time you know we still there's still you'll see something in the news where oh back before whatever 1986 uh, justices who were appointed by republicans actually voted in favor of some law that upheld a social yeah. policy that was you know that it was a little bit less predictable because they were finding people who were just good jurists and maybe not just hardcore partisans that for anybody who actually pays attention is, is that ship has sailed so far out of port is gone.
2: Oh yeah. So, and and I guess by the way, favorite. uh, on a tangent here, uh, tonight will be the start of, uh, Ryan Murphy's 10 part series of the Clinton impeachment, uh, which began out of, uh, Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky, which I will be obsessively watching. Uh, I must confess. I don't know, Jim, if you're going to watch it, but, uh, I've really turned I've many thoughts on this, but I've I've really turned against Bill Clinton uh, for many reasons over the last uh, 10 years or so. Every year, it seems I turn against him more and more. Uh, I find him a repulsive political character. Uh, But whenever I say this uh, to um, Democrats, more often than not, the response is, he appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court and I'm like, well, you know, he did do that, you know, and, and but that just underscores the, the, the stakes that you're alluding to. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's like that one appointment was so important because she held office for so long and could evolve as a powerful advocate for things that. I believe in and I think you believe in. But then, uh uh-oh, she stayed on too long, and so she died. Uh Uh-oh, she's been replaced by an automaton who's complete opposite of her. So it just underscores how insane the system is in in some ways, if you follow me. Like, I'm supposed to absolve Clinton of
0: (laughs) all his wrongdoings. Well, he'd put Ruth Bader Ginsburg on. Well, at best, you can say it's demo- like to, to to rebut my general notion or argument that this has become a very anti-democratic institution, not because the individuals are anti-democracy, although maybe a couple of them are, but because of the way it functions and because of the way it is populated, Yeah, that the stakes are, are just, they're so arbitrary as well. It's not, you know, it's not even, there's no uniform application. So even to those who might ch- challenge Biden and charge him with, uh, a scheme to pack the courts. What happened at the end of the Obama administration? They left a seat open for 10 months in order to keep their fingers crossed that maybe a Republican would be president in 2017 and they could fill Anthony Escalina's yeah. seat with whoever they wanted to. And then, of course, it, uh, Justice Kennedy voluntarily resigns with some, I would say there's some legitimacy to the questions as to his connections to Trump and finances and some of this other stuff. I don't want to be overly conspiratorial, but it certainly, it it opens the door for these very convenient, well, you know, now's the time to step down. We'll make sure we get somebody very young to take my seat. And of course, poor Justice Ginsburg dies a month and a half before the election, and they jam through a, a confirmation in two weeks, I don't know, something like that, to make sure that Barrett gets on the court. So, yeah, that, 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 pro, that whole sequence that I just described is preposterously arbitrary. It's certainly not any, any kind of the will of the people. Maybe we want to keep the situa- system in place where presidents appoint these jurists. Maybe we don't. But that in and of itself is already one level of removal, not to mention the fact that there's an electoral college, so there's already another level of removal, and yet this, that is the pathway for choosing Supreme Court justices. That really doesn't seem very democratic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, not to mention don't. that the folks who are in control there right now represent the interests of maybe 38% of Americans.
2: Wow. And it's not Democratic in uh, a lowercase d, uh, Democratic uh, in any way. And those are the, the, the justices uh, that Jim was alluding to who were uh, uh, won seats uh, on the court are, of course, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch and Comey. And there's the one. These are the uh, justices who were appointed uh, by Donald Trump because of all those circumstances that Jim just ran down. And uh, and Donald Trump one more time did not win. A majority of the uh, vote in 2016. Let's just add that part to it. Uh, And uh, all right, and so the result of those three justices being added to the court by uh, during the Trump era was a law that essentially makes citizens of Texas bounty hunters. I find that one really disturbing on uh, many levels. Uh, because it just suggests i don 't know a certain amount of lawlessness if you mm-hmm. follow what i 'm saying and and it 's so bizarre uh i 'm talking to Jim Coogan, who is a trial attorney, and for years and years, this thought just popped into my mind, Jim, for years and years, the Republican establishment has been going after uh <laughs> Attorneys like yourself, trial attorneys like yourself, saying you're the you're everything that's wrong with the system and you're over flooding the courts with needless uh, lawsuits. (laughs) And now these man, the hypocrisy of Americans. Now, these same Republicans are encouraging citizens to do just that flood the courts with lawsuits. Let's just let's just talk a little bit about that. Jim Coogan.
0: Well, you know, just on a human level, I will address more of what you're saying, but before I say that, I want to point out, on a human level, this seems like a bad idea, because you're talking about a a, a human combination of people who are in a very desperate situation, I, 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 I know there may be... Exceptions to every rule, but I refuse to believe that the vast majority of people who are seeking an abortion are not in a, such a desperate situation that they've they've finally determined this is the only thing that they can do for their life and for their health. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's start with that premise. Now you're empowering. The law is saying we're not we're not even going to get involved in this. People who have badges and training, and we're supposed to be protecting the health and welfare of the citizens of Harris County or whatever place in Texas. We're not even involved anymore. So we're deputizing anybody and everyone yeah. to go be probably. Don't you think this is going to lead to confrontations? Yeah, I mean, there's already been bombings, murders of abortion providers over the years. There's already, you know, they have to put up chain link fences outside of the clinics because. People who are overly zealot, over zealots about this will get out there and get in people's faces, throw things at them, threaten them, write down their information, dox them by putting their information on, on the internet. So it's already a heated situation that's extremely confrontational. Now you're saying, you know what? On top of which, we're going to hand out $10,000 checks if you can go and catch somebody in the end. So yeah, it's, it's kind of perverse and it definitely turns the law on its ear. And as far as filing frivolous lawsuits, I will have you know that I've paid attention to the statistics over the years, and injury lawsuits are a very small fraction of the civil suits filed in this country, Ben. But you probably already knew that, and maybe your listeners did, too. The notion that yeah, our kinds of clients are the ones filing frivolous suits or clogging the courts has always been an absolute joke and not supported by any evidence. But this will definitely lead to all manner of frivolity. I mean, you can't... Who, Who knows who's going to, so for example, you file a lawsuit in federal court. There's a procedural rule, rule 11. There's an Illinois version of that, but it's a little bit, there's less teeth and it doesn't get enforced as as often. But if you file a frivolous lawsuit, you can be penalized. Courts can fine you money. Now I don't know if there's going to be some lawyer down there who's going to You know, broadcast far and wide. Come to me with your whistle quote unquote whistleblower cases, and I'll file them for you. Or if people are just going to do this pro se, it's probably going to be nuts the way this actually gets enforced. Assuming, of course, that maybe the real impact is already going to happen, uh, which is people will stop going, clinics will shut down, and maybe there won't be anything to report because the prospect of these kind of civil penalties is so great that it's the other reason why. Ah, uh, this law will effectively destroy Roe versus Wade without even touching it.
2: Yeah. Uh, by the way, I think all everything you predicted will happen uh, has the potential of happening anyway. In other words, uh, it will have uh, impact uh, absolutely on. Uh, the availability of abortion in the state of Texas, no doubt in my mind. I do believe uh, some uh, quote unquote enterprising lawyers uh, will uh, make this their business. I think there's money to be made for this. Uh, if, if the law is in fact uh, are willing to uh, ready to go through, and then there will be all kinds of, I, you're, it, this will be weaponized by uh, neighbors who don't like their neighbors.
1: Just, mm-hmm.
2: So this is uh, it's just bad from start to finish. I can't see any good coming out of it, uh, with the p- p- possible exception, of going back to my last mm-hmm. conversation with uh, Bruce Williams from California, who's saying that it's been a rallying uh, cry for people who are against the gubernatorial recall uh, in uh, uh, California, saying, okay, you see Texas? Larry Elder could do that here in California. So th- other than that, uh, Jim Coogan, uh, I can't see any good coming out of this. And you s- sent me something as a text today that really uh, struck me. You, you you alluded to the Dred Scott case, uh, f- 1850. 18- what year was that? 50. I'm trying to do the, late in 50s. my memory, yeah. it's the late 1850s. I was, I was as old as I am. Even I wasn't born then. Uh, but uh, having to do with forcing uh, slaves to return uh, to their owners. And there's a certain amount of, of that kind of psychology uh, in this uh, bill. Don't so explain a little bit what you meant by that. When you said that it's reminded you of Dred Scott.
0: Yeah. I mean, You know a different era so there's a different reason why they're effectively deputizing anyone and everyone who wants to enforce this law for them they're doing it for different reasons here because in the 1840s i think the actual fugitive slave act was passed in 1850. so up to that point in the 1840s you have a border effectively between slave and free states running across the middle of the country and there just wouldn't have been enough manpower. Or if you were, let's say you were a slaveholder and, and one of your, what you see as possessions ran away, you can't, it's hard to just hire a bounty hunter of your own, maybe they don't know where to go. Instead, pretty much anybody could would be empowered to, uh, to potentially enforce this if they knew someone was actually a slave, if they suspected them of it, of, you know, there's a, a black person in Indianapolis and they're thinking, well, they're not from around here, I wonder where they're from there was the possibility that they could be, you know, tap into a bounty network and make some money off of it, report to the right person, get a payoff from that guy. And, and this way the law wasn't going to go enforce it. They couldn't send um, state militia from the state of Kentucky up to Indiana, or that would have started the, the, the Civil War. So they basically was a way of using private individuals to enforce a heinous legal scheme that the decision in the Dred Scott case, which was such a disgrace for the United States Supreme Court, upheld that law, even in a situation where the person was in a free state and basically said, hey, this can't, this can't apply to me at this point. I'm not in whatever state that uh, I think the originally came from, and therefore it can't be constitutional to enforce a law across state lines like this, but that was the Supreme Court's decision at the time. Effectively, it, the echo that I heard between the two is that instead of actually using law enforcement to do something that is morally ambiguous or just deplorable, but at you know at best the advocates are going to say, Well, oh, slavery is just a southern institution, and we're just defending it. We're not passing on the merits of it. This is just the way it is." Um, it's kind of the same thing, you know. You're you're talking about people who are in a desperate situation, and rather than having sheriff's deputies go do something. And stand behind the law that you want to pass. Instead, they're kind of just washing their hands of it and letting the I don't know the marketplace take care of it, um, which is always a dangerous thing when you're when you're allowing you're basically delegating law enforcement powers. And I think that's an extremely dangerous way to 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 run any kind of a serious legal system. And that's exactly what's happened here, and that's exactly what they're doing.
2: All right, uh, so we'll close with this. Um, the Supreme Court says they ruled that they can't enjoin the uh, the law, so they can't block them from implementing the law. So people who are opposing the law legally, what's, what's next? Do they return to the Fifth Circuit? Uh, do they file back to the Supreme Court? In other words, the Supreme Court didn't say right. that this law is constitutional. It just said we can't block it. So what's next for opponents of the law?
0: Well, um, I'm... I guess the challenging part is for someone who, let's say they turn out to be nine or ten weeks pregnant, they finally realize they're pregnant for the first time and are seeking to get an abortion, it's very difficult for that to become a test case for a lot of practical reasons. Um, They may be deemed as not having standing to challenge it because uh, I'm just trying to think about how that would work. The person who would definitely have standing would be somebody who is actually sued under one of these bounties, Situations gets reported, and actually has to pay a ten thousand dollar fine. They the so somebody may vol- I would suspect that the more likely mechanism is someone may voluntarily do that, let themselves be the ones who is going to be uh, at the mercy of this law, and allow that to get appealed, and then appealed again, and probably almost definitely end up back in front of the United States Supreme Court again on the merits. So in that situation, you would have somebody who actually got. Penalize this $10,000 civil fine right. um, because the, the practical impact with someone actually seeking an abortion—if they really—that's what they really need to have happen. In all likelihood, they're going to have to seek that somewhere else, have it happen, and therefore somebody would, some court would say, "Well, you don't have standing. This isn't an issue for you anymore. So you can't really challenge this law on the hypothetical basis that you might seek to get this care in Texas." So it's probably the latter of those two, and that can be it. I mean, in all in all likelihood um well i guess the legal the legal and political strategy behind that they'll probably have to think that through because of course the risk is that this does get ratified that it's upheld yeah that for some reason beyond the facial merits of it that the deeper merits that there's still a 5-4 majority that's going to uphold this i would say dangerous and undemocratic and unelected group of bounty hunters going around enforcing the law. This whole system that Texas has endorsed here could be found to to be constitutional somehow. Uh, There might be a case where it effectively uh, overturns Roe versus Wade in a more permanent fashion, again, probably without actually challenging the merits of the right to privacy. They would just say that, Hey, we made a regulatory scheme. We decided that here's the cutoff line and our, our, we're not even enforcing this. The people of Texas are. Yeah. Uh,
2: so I guess the only hope for Texas uh, is uh, demographic changes which we've talked about in the show a lot uh, turn Texas from the Trump state that it is the MAGA state that it is to a blue state uh, and then they could uh, pass new legislation and you watch suddenly the Supreme Court will find its power to enjoin Uh, (laughs) uh, you watch you watch that Uh, anyway uh, Jim I will say this we'll end on a For me, anyway, a positive note. The um, one other thing that uh, I note that the legislation has done some very uh, encouraging uh, sort of what civil disobedience, if you will, on the part of people who are flooding the complaint lines with bogus uh, complaints of people uh, violating the law. I don't know if you've seen this. uh, people. So like, you know, I could say, well, I saw Donald Trump drive a woman to an abortion clinic. And uh, so you accuse Donald Trump, Donald John or Donald uh, Trump Jr. or somebody like that. So um, it is uh, inspiring resistance. And ultimately, I think political resistance is what's going to take Jim Coogan uh, to uh, eradicate this law.
0: I mean, I wish it didn't require... These kinds of threats to individual this is a real threat to individual liberty I know that's liberty is is the buzzword of the right wing pundit in this country, but honestly, this is an actual threat to individual liberty. This is big government controlling someone 's sexuality is is about as big government and intrusive as it gets. you know a regulation on how old you have to be before you buy a gun is not really a, an in, infringement on your your liberty it 's probably a reflection that your prefrontal cortex hasn 't really uh, finalize until you're 28 years old or whatever for a man i'd say take it up to that age for possession but that's a whole different ballgame but yeah, i mean maybe you're right ben hopefully that hopefully your your guest earlier is right that california voters are awakened by the actual threat as opposed to just ignoring these threats and they go vote accordingly um you know democracy is a very imperfect thing but assuming that you're allowed to vote and your state hasn't taken that right away from you yet you can still do something. You can still go cast your ballot and at least make your voice heard at the ballot at that one time a year or every four years you get the chance to yeah
2: by the way uh, you just reminded me how worthless libertarians are on matters of real liberty uh the only thing the libertarians seem to be really cared about these days is the liberty not to have to take the vaccine but <laughs> meanwhile women down in texas well you lost your liberty uh and the state uh The Supreme Court won't even come to your aid. So, uh, all right, Jim Coogan, thank you so much. Uh, It was fun talking uh, law with you as opposed to talking White Sox, which is also fun. Uh, And uh, I just, but I have to ask you one White Sox related question before we let you walk out uh, the door. Are you heading into September confident about the Chicago White Sox chance? Uh, or are you heading into September looking at the bullpen, the 7th and 8th and ninth innings, getting a little nervous? Are you confident or are you nervous?
0: What worries me is they got a lot of injuries on what had up to this point been a very solid starting pitching staff. Position players, all these guys who missed a lot of time, I think the cycle is all kind of coalescing in a good way. The position guys all seem to be healthy and they should be we'll see how that staff looks in three weeks if they can get healthy that's what matters most i mean i don't that's that's something you really just can't predict i think some of the scuffling lately i can live with um hopefully they just get them on the right pathway at the right time yeah
2: by the way i'm gonna give another shout out to tony Lewis. i thought he's done a great job managing the white Sox. but i'm not gonna allow this uh to head into a white Sox discussion another time Uh, other time. Uh, thank you, Jim Coogan. Great job as always. Also, want to thank uh, Bruce Williams uh, calling in from California, talking about the uh, recall election in California. If you're a Democrat, it's a little good news. He predicts victory. Uh, and uh, I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And it's Jim Coogan. Uh, and Bruce Williams would tell you, back home at Alton, they call you, call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Quick take question, Ben. Petty cash. Cool question. Before I, before I take it out of petty cash, no first Tuesday tonight? Oh, no first Tuesday tonight. Absolutely no. First Tuesday, uh, I, I, I shouldn't let the cat out of the bag. Uh, Maya, my partner in crime, just got married, uh, was on her honeymoon. So congratulations, Maya. And... Um, Yeah, everybody wishes you a great honeymoon i think she just got back so no uh first tuesday for september so thank you for saying that d all right now give me that money i'm taking it Uh, now go back to the uh petty cash and take your money and uh, have a uh, great day everybody see you tomorrow